0: Uh, I'm really excited about today's sermon, only because this uh, particular chapter is one that might be unfamiliar to you, as it was to me, uh, per se, uh, in the sense that uh, putting it in the larger context and narrative of not just the story of Kings, but of the story of Scripture, too. Uh, This particular passage, 1 Kings chapter 13, I would say is uh, truly identified as a head-scratcher. Uh, if you read all 34 verses, uh, much of the different scenes that we're going to look at uh, seem to be uh, bring up and raise a lot of questions. And in fact, I'll just be truthful with you. Uh, you will likely have uh, some unanswered questions by the end of uh, today's sermon. And I say that up front just so that you're not surprised uh, when you get there and there's some, ans- some questions that you have that aren't maybe perhaps answered. And I say that because, I don't want you to be surprised, but I also say that because mm, this particular passage, as I've uh, really desired to study and examine it, I've found actually to be of supreme importance for you and I this morning. Not just you and I this morning, but you and I for the rest of our days, Um, despite the perhaps puzzling nature of the scenes in this chapter, This this all 34 verses I truly hold uh, have one particular thing in mind, one particular theme, uh, and it actually revolves around one particular thing that I hope everyone has in their hands this morning, um, namely uh, the Bible. <laughs> this passage deals with the Word of God. Uh, and that may seem uh, perhaps self-evident this is the word of god but it concerns itself with how we handle the word of god and how we uh, approach the word of god because in fact in all 34 verses of this chapter the word uh, that phrase word of the lord is mentioned 10 times in verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 9 and 17 and 18 and 20 and 26 and 32 uh, all throughout this idea of the word of the Lord and how it is received, how it is perceived, and how it is accept, accepted and handled is dealt with all throughout. And I think this is what provides. The If I can say the connective tissue of this otherwise very sweeping narrative. It concerns itself with the word of the Lord. And in fact we might be more accurate to say how the word of the Lord is is, is mishandled. Because that's what we're going to see. In all of these scenes we see a failure to handle and approach and receive and accept the authoritative word of God. We see it over and over again throughout the course of this chapter and the serious consequences that come about in that failure to handle the word of God. And that's what I want to really concern ourselves with this morning is this, how the word of God is handled and the repercussions for mishandling it. But we're just going to walk through, walk through these verses And it's important to keep in mind, as chapter 13 opens up, we have to keep chapter 12 in view. If you remember, especially last week, as we were looking at Jeroboam's uh, creation of this bootleg religion that he just created out of thin air, so to speak. um, He devised in his own heart this new religious order by which he thought he could preserve his kingdom. That's the story we read from chapter 12, verses 25 through 33. And he proceeds to uh, mimic, to uh, impersonate the religion of Jehovah, of Yahweh, in every way, except for perhaps the most crucial part of actually worshipping Yahweh. Uh, What he really worshipped, as we uh, strove to examine last week, is what he really worshipped was himself. He he put himself in in that seat of, in, in that house of worship. And we find him there. Verse uh, 33 of chapter 12 is important. It's almost sort of the introduction to the narrative that we're about to go into. So he, Jeroboam, uh, offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So he's there, he's in this house of worship, conducting a worship service, offering on this altar sacrifices and burning incense, which, by the way, side note, are two things which were prohibited uh, of a king to do, to perform. And here he is doing it. Again, he's executing things that he's not uh, supposed to, uh, again, because he deems himself the authority on all matters. But That's the scene. He's in a worship service. As much, perhaps, we could say, just think of it like we are right now. We're in a worship service. There's worship going on and all of a sudden in walks a man. Look at verse 2 or verse 1 of chapter 13. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. In walks this guy, this, this man of God, a preacher. He comes in and he, he comes in with the proverbial guns blazing with, with and he makes a scene. This this guy out of Judah, uh, notice verse one. behold, there became a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord, unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense, and he, the man of God, cried, he proclaimed, he preached against the altar in the word of the Lord, and said, "O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee." And men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Now imagine the scene. Jeroboam, the king of Israel and also the the supposed religious head of Israel is conducting this worship service. And is interrupted by this enemy preacher. This preacher from Judah. He rudely interrupts this service. And not just that, he has now pronounced a very strong word of judgment on everything that's going on. All that you're doing is against the Lord. All that you're doing is against his name. And guess what? There's coming a day when there's going to be this guy, Josiah, who's going to come and totally ruin all your high places and actually burn your priests on those altars. Not a very nice word that he comes in bearing, I'm sure that there were several in that crowd that were kind of like snickering at that guy. (laughs) Laughing at this crazy man from the south with this message of judgment. And yet more than likely I think they viewed this this preacher man from Judah with a lot of disgust and disdain. How dare you? How dare you interrupt our service? (laughs) But this this preacher remains totally unfazed. Notice, this, he pronounces this word, and there's probably no small amount of commotion going on. And then verse 3, and he gave a sign the same day, saying, this is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, be torn into pieces, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. He's sure of his assignment, and he says, there's going to be a sign in this very hour that's going to come about to confirm all my words. All my words are true. He's so sure of the word that he has been given. And this is, I think, crucial to understanding this man, this this man of God from Judah. He came, as it says in verse 1, by the word of the Lord, declaring a message in the word of the Lord. He was possessed of this mission. A, a very clear resolve to declare nothing but God's words to these people that they needed to hear the word of Yahweh. A word which, by the way, foretells the entire, as we said, ruin and destruction of, of the very altar that everyone was worshipping at and the very structure everyone was standing in. Hey, where you're standing is going to be nothing but ash. There's coming a day when a king is going to come and turn this place to rubble. And the preacher doubles down on that message when he gives this confirmation of a sign. A sign is coming. Jeroboam doesn't like this. Not one bit we could say. He doesn't like this word at all. So he he points his finger at the man. Notice verse 4, and it came to pass when the king Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar saying, lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it again to him. An insane scene. He points at this guy saying, seize him. Get him out of this place. And as he's pointing the finger of authority, his hand is frozen. Withered of all of its strength. Withered of its life. And he almost stands there pointing a paralyzed finger at this man of God. I think definitely indication that there was a truer authority in that room other than Jeroboam. (laughs) A better authority in that room froze Jeroboam's hand. And then suddenly, in that moment, with a hand that's paralyzed, indicating a false sense of authority, the preacher's sign comes about. Look at verse 5. Then the altar also was rent. It was torn into pieces, and the ashes poured out of the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. All that the preacher had just said comes about. The altar is shattered. It's torn into pieces and the ashes pour out of it onto the floor. Definitive proof that this preacher's word, this, this crazy preacher from Judah, all of what he has come and said and declared to them is true. It's certain. The, um, the the fact that this immediate sign comes about is is a token it's a, it's an indication that this future uh, uh, word of judgment is just as certain which by the way he talks about Josiah he's not a king that would come about until about 300 years later all the way we have to go all the way to second kings to see the fulfillment of this moment. Such is where we get the powerful sign that this future judgment is confirmed by how certain this immediate judgment comes about. And this moment pierces Jeroboam's heart. Moving him to ask for healing. Look at verse 6. And the king answered and said unto the man of God. Entreat, plead now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me. That my hand may be restored me again. And remarkably, remarkably his request is granted. And the man, continuing in verse 6, the man of God besought the Lord and the king's hand was restored him again. And it became as it was before. His request is granted This plea for mercy of this false bootleg religion guy, Jeroboam, is accepted and granted. He's healed. His hand is restored just as it was before. Which to me, I think, reveals what this entire uh, preliminary scene is all about. The, the, the gross interruption of the preacher into that worship service is an example of God's, we could say, sudden mercy or violent mercy in the sense that he's, he's doing something very demonstrable, very noticeable to get Jeroboam's attention. Something to interrupt Jeroboam's ridiculous request for power and position. His his in his stubborn stubborn sort of journey to say I am the true authority, it was totally stopped and interrupted by this man of God who came bearing a word of God. This is an opportunity for Jeroboam to repent. It's a moment of violent mercy, of sudden interrupting mercy to say, Jeroboam, you are wayward. And did Jeroboam take it? Does he take this opportunity? Well, let's wait on that. I want to pause. Keep that in your mind. Because what happens, Jeroboam is moved. Moved by what he has just seen uh, out of this man of God and this powerful moment of restoration such that he he invites him to come to his house. And the king said unto the man of God, verse 7, come home with me and refresh thyself and I will give thee a reward. The Judean preacher emphatically refuses this offer citing that he has been charged and directed by none other than Yahweh himself not to spend any time in this place. Verse 8, And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half of thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou came, as so he went another way, and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Interesting question. Why was he given this command? Why was this Judean prophet not allowed to spend time in this foreign place? Even though he's declaring a word here. That's not particularly answered. But then the historian introduces us to another prophet. Notice verse 11. Now there dwelt... An old prophet in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king. Them they also told to their father. This old prophet. who Who is he? Who is this old prophet? Is he a true prophet of God or is he a false one? If he's a true one. Why has he not spoken out against Jeroboam previously? Or if he's, if he's a true one, why is he hanging around in Bethel when the true center of worship is still in Jerusalem? Why is he, uh, why is he allowing Jeroboam to, to concoct this, this bootleg religion that he, has, that he has created in this moment? Again, there's no answers for that. <laughs> there's no answers immediately in the text for those certain questions. It's just an old prophet in Bethel. Who had two sons who were apparently visiting Jeroboam's church service that morning. And they saw all those events. The the man of God interrupting. The the hand that's paralyzed. And and the ashes that come pouring out of the altar. And they, they tell their dad about it. And this old prophet is immediately struck with finding this Judean preacher. Notice verse 12. And their father said unto them, what way went he? For his sons had seen the way that the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon and went after the man of God. And notice he finds him. Verse 14, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, art thou the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. This brings me to some other questions that I had upon reading and examining this text. Why is this man of God sitting under an oak tree? He's been duly charged by none other than Yahweh that he's not supposed to spend any time in this place. In Bethel. He's he's here on a direct order from God to declare this word and leave by another way. Don't even go the same way that you came so you can avoid all the people that you saw previously. He's not supposed to dine. He's not supposed to drink. He's supposed to make himself sort of unseen as he goes away. And here he is under an oak tree sitting I don't know if he was just taking a breather. I'm not sure why he delayed. Yahweh's command seems to be given with a sense of promptness to not delay in leaving. So why is he sitting there? It doesn't say. It doesn't tell us. But this old prophet then offers this prophet from Judah, the Judean preacher, the same thing that Jeroboam did. Come and dine and dwell. To which this man of God gives the same reply. Notice verse 15. Then said the old prophet unto him. Come home with me and eat bread. And he said I may not return with thee. Nor go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord. Thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there. Nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. But then. Notice, this old prophet gives a very, very curious claim. I'm a prophet just like you, he says. He said to him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He tells him, I received a word just like you have from an angel. And and this angel told me to bring you back and bring you and give you refreshment and nourishment at my house. And surprisingly, this preacher from Judah believes him. Notice verse 19. And so he, the man of God from Judah, went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. I say it's surprising because, as we noted, Yahweh's instructions seemed pretty clear. Deliver your message and go another way. Don't spend any time. Don't hang around. Don't just hang out in this place. And it's also surprising because of what the historian says at the end of verse 18. That after this message, there's this little clarifying note at the end of verse 18. But he lied unto him. He hadn't received a word from the Lord. It was a lie. It was a deception. It was a deception by this old prophet from Bethel. Which makes us believe that he can't be trusted and he cannot. Which begs some questions. Why would he lie? Why would he deceive this supposed fellow prophet? What's his motive? Text doesn't say. It doesn't give us an answer, which hopefully we'll get some res- resolution in a moment. But this man of God, the, the Judean preacher, is utterly deceived. At verse 19, he goes back with the old prophet from Bethel. He goes to his house and he proceeds to have dinner there. Yet in the course of dinner, as, it, as it's progressing, they're dining, they're eating, they're fellowshiping, and they're talking, laughing, conversing, small talking. This old prophet Start sharing another word from the Lord. Look at verse 20. And it came to pass, as they sat at table, that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. And he cried, he proclaimed, preached unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which God, or excuse me, which the Lord thy God commanded thee, But came back and has eaten bread and drunk water in this place. Of which the Lord did say to thee, eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. A strong message. A a very violent interrupting message that this preacher from Bethel delivers to this other preacher from Judah. A really interesting scene. And it shocks this Judean preacher. So much so that as soon as dinner is over, which interestingly, he doesn't get up right then and there. He finishes dinner. And then he departs. He leaves. Look at verse 23. And it came to pass, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the ass to wit, for which the prophet whom he had brought back. So he takes the old prophet's donkey and he, he heads home. He starts heading back the way home. But he never makes it. He never makes it home. As as this old prophet from Bethel said that he would not come to be buried in the sepulchre of his fathers. And it happens immediately. This judgment happens in that very moment. He's ambushed by a lion. Notice verse 24. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way in the road and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way. And the ass stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. It's kind of a gross scene. Kind of, kind of disgusting. <laughs> that this body is not even considered a body, it's considered a carcass. And that this lion is just throwing it around after he has mangled and mauled him. And the old prophet hears this news. He hears the stories of how this Judean prophet met this fate on the road. And he goes out and determines to find this preacher's body. Look at verse 25. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the road and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God who is disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord hath delivered him unto the lion. Which hath torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord, which he spake unto him. And he spake to his son, saying, Saddle me the ass. And they saddled him. And he went, and so he goes out to find this body. And he's greeted with a very, very odd welcoming committee. Notice verse 28. And he went and found his carcass cast in the way, in the road. And the ass and the lion stood by the carcass. (laughs) The lion had not eaten the carcass, nor had torn the ass. A very interesting scene. The lion hadn't finished mauling his prey, and he hadn't even tried to attack the donkey that's on the same scene. Instead, he's just standing there. They're standing by this body of this Judean preacher, kind of standing over it, both the donkey and the lion. The old prophet then brings this body back to Bethel. As it says in verse 29, to mourn and to bury him. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God and laid it upon the ass and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury this man of God from Judah. Interesting turn of events. He comes to uh, very much honor this body of this Judean preacher. And not only that, as notice in verses 30 through 32, he, he then lays him to rest in his own grave and calls him a brother and vouches for the very message that he had delivered to Jeroboam. Notice verse 30, and he laid the carcass in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. And it came to pass after he had buried him that he spake to his son saying, when I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre. Wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel. And against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. Shall surely come to pass. Interesting turn of events. That this man of God who lied and deceived is now honoring the man of God who had the opposite trajectory. (laughs) The true man of God becomes the man of God who fails the word of God. And the man of God who lied becomes the man of God who now upholds this word of the Lord. A very strange turn of events. Which is where we come back in verse 33 to what this whole thing has been about. Because what's happened with Jeroboam? The earlier part was all about this Jeroboam, the king of Israel, who has made his own religion. And what does it say about him? What has he learned as he perhaps hears about all these events? And after this thing, verse 33, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way. He didn't change one bit. He didn't learn anything. He didn't have anything let him be affected by all of the news that he hears. He didn't return from his evil way, it says, but made again of the lowest of the people, priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. He despised God's word. He rejected God's words. And now he plunges Israel into further, deeper, darker, more deplorable sin. He plunges them even into more misery. It's a sad, I would say disgusting sort of note to end the story on. The carcass of this preacher and Jeroboam's Stubborn uh, plunge into wickedness. But again, there's something that is even more tragic going on. There's something even much more of a travesty than just this preacher uh, being thrown aside into the ditch. And the travesty of this passage is that the word of the Lord has been forsaken by every single party. Did you notice that? As we were walking through, did you notice how often it says the word of the Lord came and then the man who receives that word does the opposite? The Judean preacher, he abandoned this word of the Lord and that ought to disturb us. (laughs) A, a supposed man of the cloth, a, a preacher, a, a prophet who came in the word of the Lord, declaring the word of the Lord, ultimately fails that word and has his body cast aside into the side of the road. But even more disturbing than that is that he let go. He surrendered his grip of God's words to him in favor of a third hand at best word of the Lord. Remember the old prophet from Bethel comes to him and says, God told me to tell you that an angel told me to tell you that you shouldn't go or that you should come back to my house. (laughs) It's, It's third hand at best this message from this prophet from Bethel. Instead of being true to the word that he was given. As he said, I was directly charged by Yahweh. said he lets that word go. He abandons it. And he swiftly judged for that abandonment. As the old prophet said in verse 26. That it is the man of God. And why has this come about? Because he was disobedient. Disobedient unto what? The word of the Lord. He was disobedient to it. He had rejected it. He had discarded it. Such is why this lion of judgment comes upon this man of God. And that might strike us as a very severe form of punishment. (laughs) He just made a mistake, right? He He just made a little error. Such is how serious God concerns our handling of the word of God that we've been given. I'm not trying to say that to scare you. That you're going to be met by a lion when you leave church today. I hope not. I don't know what Lake Tobias has. Maybe they have lions and he got out. I don't know that for sure. I will say this. That this ought to raise the seriousness with which we approach God's word. The seriousness with with which we approach this God, uh, this word directly from the lion of Judah himself. Because you see, just as this lion came up and judged that preacher, so too was the message being given to Jeroboam. That there was a lion of Judah going to come and judge you for the very same word that you have rejected. You see, the the, the fate of the man of God was meant to be a lesson for Jeroboam that this was his same fate. And that ought to scare him way more than the shattered altar. That ought to scare him way more than that altar that was torn to bits. It was the fact that there was a judgment coming by this lion of Judah whose name is Yahweh himself. And yet Jeroboam, as we find him at the end of this passage is stubbornly resolved to go his own way, to do his own thing, to still be the authority in this bootleg religion that he has crafted for himself. He treats God's words with disdain, with disregard and contempt. He doesn't, have, he doesn't let any of himself be affected by it, moved by it, changed by it. And rather than submitting himself under the authority of the words of the Lord and the God of the word, he remains totally his own authority. Totally his own king. And such is the life and legacy of Jeroboam. As we're going to get to next week in chapter 14, eventually, this becomes his legacy. He is an example of kingly failure. So much so that again, 300 years later, when Josiah is actually carrying out all of these things, you know whose name is mentioned? Jeroboam. Mentioned because of his failure. Because of his total disregard for the things of the word and the things of God himself. Everyone that comes after him who follows in the same pattern is said to go and walk in the ways of Jeroboam. He's a king of failure, which to me is kind of ironic. (laughs) Because think about it Jeroboam becomes the fool that he sought to dethrone by failing to see the arrows of his rays. He becomes perhaps more of a fool than even the wisest fool who ever lived, King Solomon, (laughs) because he failed. He failed to respond to God's sudden violent mercy. The interruption of his ordered life was meant to bring him to a place of repentance. And such is what God was doing for Solomon. And yet both kings failed. And they became fools. And eventually, you know what he mimicked? (laughs) Jeroboam mimicked Solomon's gross fall from grace. Because, it, you know what's interesting, this word rent that appears here is the same exact word of judgment that came to Solomon in chapter 11. How the kingdom was going to be ripped out of his hands in the same way Jeroboam was going to have this throne ripped from him. Ripped out of his fingers. And what looms over all of that? Like, like an ominous cloud over this whole chapter is nothing but this: the rejection of the word of the Lord, a failure to put yourself under it, under its authority. This is uh, Jeroboam's doom was pictured in that, and the Judean preachers' decline, and so too was Israel's. They too were meant to see this and be aroused from their faithless slumber and their and their wandering away from God. To again put themselves under the, the correct handling of the word of God. Instead of mishandling it and going their own way. And it's would say, which brings me to this. That that same message ought to pierce our hearts as well. There are ways, I think, every single day in which we mishandle this word of God. Actually, I think that's, if I can say, the, the elemental problem with the American church. is nothing but the fact that this word of God is considered old wives' tales. It's fables. It's not entirely true. It contains parts of things that are true. It, it actually just is it's about morals and it's about life lessons and all those certain, thing, certain things in which th- that's the ways I think this word is, is mishandled. And not just that, maybe, maybe you don't believe that. Maybe even more personally, it, it's the fact that this word is seen as a little bit unnecessary. We don't have to spend time in it. I'm too busy to read it. I'm too busy to take time to study it. I'm, I, I, I can't fit it into my schedule. We care too little for this word of God. And again, I'm preaching to myself. We care too little for its message. Its mercy is then refused. And its truth is abandoned. And its truth is abused. It's not viewed as central and vital. And absolutely categorically necessary to our well-being. It's, 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 it's viewed as something like, like a vitamin. If I remember it, I'll take it in the morning. <laughs> instead this is your lifeline my friends your lifeline to everything that is your true and only hope we read it if we get around to it and perhaps we're, we're more confident in what we read and see in the news than we are when we read and see this word of god if there's one travesty in the american church that i can point today it's that Fox News has become our Bible. It's become the place we go to. To understand what's going on with the world. When it's right here in front of us. That God. He is sovereign over all of these things. This thing came from me. As we, as we everywhere meant to emphasize last week. And how we handle that word. And those moments that come from God. It's right here. When we mishandle it, we fall into consequences. We fall into wickedness and we eventually lose our own souls. There are voices all around us, all the time, that are trying to convince you that this thing is nothing but wicked fabrications. That it comes from a God who's only out to get justice, who's only out to get vengeance. Let me tell you, this word of the Lord, you know what it tells us about? It tells us about God who's, who is everything true and certain and steady and merciful and powerful and his sovereign grace which he performs on behalf of his people. In short, it tells you about nothing but the word of God who became flesh to die for those in the flesh. This word of God tells you about your only true and good and, uh, and only Lord, Jesus Christ. It's a word which reveals the word himself, which is what this whole thing is all about. This is what church is all about. This is why we are here worshiping. Because when we are here worshiping, we are made to honor and prize and surrender and treasure this God of the word. By what? By this word of God being proclaimed and true and certain and authoritative. Which leads me to just ask. Where are you mishandling this word of God this morning? Like Jeroboam, are you refusing to see and notice and respond to those violent moments of God's mercy? Or are you, are you being made to question it because of outside voices that say that, say that you can't trust the words that you've been given? Where are you mishandling the words of the Lord? Where are you still, like Jeroboam at the end of this chapter, functioning as your own authority? I don't need the word. I can, I can get by on my own. This morning, the call that was the same for Jeroboam, that was the same for Israel, is the same call for you and for me right here, right now. It is to submit ourselves and surrender to this word of the Lord and the Lord of this word. To submit to its authority. To surrender to its awe-inspiring and transforming power. Because this word, it reveals the word become flesh. Who is your king? Who is your authority? He's the one that this whole thing points to. He's the one Who laid his life down so that you might find yours. And we find it in this word. Which reveals that word made flesh. Let us pray.